Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Dr. Wade Mullen, from here on out, I'm going to call you Wade, partly because you told me to, but also because we're like kind of the same age. And I don't know. I don't like calling my friends doctor. It's weird. Yeah. But I am very, very pumped to talk with you today uh, for reasons that will become clear very quickly to people who know this show. Tell us first, though, before we get into the sort of impression management organizations and how that connects to abuse, give us just like a basic background of your experience with the church throughout your life and and that led you to work on your dissertation and then write this book? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, Grew up in an independent Baptist church, actually. Went to a Bible college, went to seminary, pursuing at the time a Master of Theology degree. Ended up working on staff at a church, became an associate pastor. And so it had a broad experience, both in the academic world seminary, and then also in the local church context, and thought that that was going to be the path I was going to be on for life. And then went through very difficult crisis, and I started seeing the underbelly. You know, the the show Stranger Things? Of course. It's been a while since I've seen it. What's the the world? The upside down. The upside down, yeah. So I started feeling like I was just entering into the upside down of evangelical Christianity. And seeing the corruption, seeing the abuse, seeing how that was at times being covered up by people who I thought wouldn't do that. And that was very difficult. That was disorienting. Also then led me to choose a dissertation topic for my PhD. I had a number of options, but one of those options was how are evangelical institutions responding to crises? And there's different types of crises, but one type is a scandal, an image threatening event. You know, the pastor is arrested um, where there's an accusation against somebody on staff for some kind of abuse. And I wanted to understand how institutions, specifically evangelical institutions, were responding to this. And at the same time was going through that myself at a, in a local church context. And just the light bulb started going off of me and I started to see so much more and started then as a result of that education, being able to 
advocate for myself to get some agency back that I didn't even know that I had lost to start making some steps toward freedom. And so that was just a life-changing couple of years for me. Um, coming out of the church background, no longer at working at a seminary, no longer at working in a local church context, and primarily now trying to help people who are in similar situations understand what's happening, what has happened, and help them hopefully take steps toward a safer future. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I'm kind of anticipating that happens when people criticize institutions especially when they criticize evangelical institutions is, well, that person is an outsider. That person is, is sort of them, not us. And your background here is like thoroughly us. Mm -hmm. You were a called to lifetime ministry, Bible college degree minister and like thoroughly in that world. And I, that's just kind of interesting to note, I think, to connect it back to a, a, a previous episode that you probably haven't heard, but listeners have with David Gushy about how the criticisms of evangelicalism are now primarily coming from within. Kristen Dumay is like a professor at Calvin College, right? Like these kind of things, Beth Allison Barr. So this is, seems like kind of in line with that, where it's like, okay, we probably shouldn't ignore that. This is not just like liberals who happen to pop into a Foursquare church for a couple months and are making a ruckus, you know, who never would have liked it in the first place. I think in some ways that has allowed me to communicate to those who might not otherwise listen to what I have to share, but it's also in some ways it made me a, a threat. Yeah. So you uh, published a dissertation or, or you, you wrote it in 2018 and you just had a book come out. I guess it was late last year called Something's Not Right. We're going to talk about both, but just so listeners know, I'm going to focus a bit more on the dissertation because the angle of that work is just something we have not covered at all on this podcast. The book, as far as I can tell from sort of looking at both is a bit more widely applicable and the dissertation is a bit more focused in like a particular study, a qualitative study. And so anytime you want, feel free to like draw connections, you know, to the book. So people understand how this connects. That's a benefit is we won't be giving away much of the book and people will have to pick it up if they want yeah. to sort of get the rest of it. Okay. So what you found as you were reviewing literature and kind of thinking about what you were going to write about, you came across a field of study that I had never heard of. And that at the time, I don't think you had heard of either called impression management, a subfield of sociology. What is impression management and where did that literature kind of come out of? Well, you know, and my understanding of it has grown, you know, over time, even since I published the dissertation. I was primarily, in my attempt to understand impression management, looking at the work of Irving Goffman, who is a Canadian sociologist, and he was looking at everyday interactions between people in different settings. And he wrote a book in 1959, published it, called The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life. Very dense book, but it was eye-opening for me as I was working my way through it. A lot of the focus early on was on individual level impression management. So the ways in which, let's say, somebody who is being interviewed for a job might try to impress exaggerating past accomplishments or not being maybe honest about a gap in a work history or that kind of thing. So you can see how impression management, the, the attempt to influence the perceptions that another person is forming of you can take place at an individual level. And you, we can see this all throughout life. So you could put the impression management glasses on and basically view these behaviors in just about any social setting. In a family setting, neighbors come over to our house, they get to our house 15 minutes early, and we start saying, quick, you know, shove the vacuum into the closet. We don't right. want to, we, because we want them to think when they come into the door, into our house, that this is how it always is that we right. didn't put any extra effort to get the house clean. Yeah. Right? So you see this kind of individual level impression management, but then research started looking at organizational level impression management, where you don't just have 
one individual seeking to manage the impression that another individual or a group of individuals is forming of them, but you might have a team of people, let's say a board or leaders within an institution working together to present a definition of the institution to the public or a definition of an event or a decision to constituents in order to together shape the perceptions that a group of people is forming of the institution and its leaders. So that then you get into a little bit more complexity because now you're 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 having to see how people might begin to take on different roles and how they might coordinate, become basically what Goffin calls a performance team. So yeah. it's a team oh, that is performance team. Yeah. That's so right. good. Like that that term alone just carries so much within it. Yes. Right. And then when you begin to apply that then to church settings, you know, you could really see it then take off and you can, you can begin to, with those glasses on, just begin to observe a lot that maybe you wouldn't have observed without that theoretical kind of lens on. A lot of times academic researchers are wary of sort of explaining their own, you know, individual stories that may have led them to work on things because there's a perception that like, oh, you're not objective. I think that's changing as as sort of postmodernism and whatever comes after it have sort of taken more hold. And we all, we realize that nobody is sort of coldly objective and we're all coming from somewhere. I don't know how much detail you want to or are comfortable getting into, but I have a feeling there's some personal experience that may have made you interested in applying that lens of impression management specifically to evangelical churches. So I don't know if you want to say much about that and, and how much you want to say. And I, and I do think that there is a need to control biases. Yes, My of concern course. is when people aren't aware of those or right. they are aware of them and they don't disclose them. So they don't control for them. They give the impression that it doesn't exist. In, so, yeah, to deny it is impression management that's or to right, ignore that's it. Right, yeah, yeah, right, right. That's funny. Yeah. So even in my dissertation, I was careful to say I have some, you know, experience of yeah. seeing firsthand how organizations use impression management to cover up scandal. And that has impacted me in a personal way, you know, so I have to just be aware of that. I think, though, that awareness helps you be more careful not only as a researcher, but also just as somebody who's who's going throughout life and is operating with, you know, these glasses. And and one thing that's helped me is I think it was Kierkegaard who said, and this is going to be a paraphrase, and I can't even tell you where what the source is, but I know it's I know it's Kierkegaard. It's something along the lines of we need to be objective toward ourselves and subjective toward others, but we tend to be the opposite. We tend to be objective when it comes to our interpretations of others and their behavior, but subjective when it comes to our own. Yeah. And, and so I've tried to keep that in mind that when I am around other people and I'm witnessing their words and their actions, that I'm careful not to jump to a conclusion about what that means, what they're trying to communicate, what might be behind that, whether or not they are trying to manage impressions or, or not, just to be careful, knowing that, you know, I would want the same courtesy extended to me and put more of that effort, that, you know, that interpretive effort, uh, direct more of that toward my own behavior, you know, and actions, which even then I'm not always certain of why I might be trying to manage the impressions others might be forming of me in a certain interaction. So it's just, it takes care. Um, and for me, it has been, the, here's what I would say. The awareness has been an asset in that regard. So the more I become aware of how this works and the more I read, the more educated I am, then I think the, the better off I am in being able to navigate all that. How much detail did you give about what happened to your wife and you in the book? So, you know, my wife and I were at this church and we became aware of how various people had been abused and began to advocate for them 
And that looked different in different situations. In some cases, it meant making a report to the police because the abuse was criminal. And then there was a follow-up. And But then the response from the church was something that we were really troubled by, where we were trying to say, it's good for that people are coming forward with their stories. They need a compassionate and just response. And the response of the institution to us seemed to be, you know, let's shut this down. And one leader even said, these people can take us all down with their stories. And so that was, that was the concern. Man, he, he just said it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he yeah, just said just, the quiet part out oh, loud. Right, right. Yeah, definitely said the quiet part out loud and more than one With occasion. their stories. Right, right. Oh. Um, that then put us in the position of not only advocating for those who were sharing stories, but also having to confront those who were seeking to shut those stories down yeah. and to say to them, you know, this isn't right. And that went on for about two years and fighting it at every level. So fighting it with specific leaders who were saying and doing things that they should not have said and done, fighting it at the board level, then fighting it at the level of attorneys who got involved, then fighting it at the level of legislators who wrote relevant laws at the time. And it was just an ongoing, wow. okay, who, what is the next highest authority that I can appeal to? And so one thing that I learned is that within the church world, these institutions and systems that might be friendly toward each other can form, not official, but like they can connect in ways that tell each other, we can help one another. And if you're under this threat, we can come alongside and help you. And so I discovered that I wasn't just then confronting and having to speak truth to the church itself, but also other institutions that they were calling upon to kind of come to their aid. And that's where I think really needs to be addressed, kind of these institutions behind the churches that are supporting some of the bad actors. So specifically those who do like conciliation work, lawyers. Yeah, I was just thinking about the film Spotlight and how in that story, when the, the Boston Globe is uncovering you know, the, the Catholic clergy sexual abuse stuff, those law firms, right, that like specifically handled hundreds or tens or dozens or whatever of these cases. And they did it in such a way that they really encouraged their clients to settle and they kind of ran interference essentially for the church. And, you know, technically, legally, and and maybe even settlement given the state of the law was in the best interest of most of their clients, but cumulatively there obviously was a kind of a pattern here and they weren't, they weren't advocating for changing of those laws, right? You know, they were obviously sort of complicit in that and really enabling the abuse by sort of each of each time that they had someone just settle out of court for this measly sum. And in my mind, then preventing people from, really getting the freedom, the justice, all the things that they, that they need. And it's right. a, just a way of shutting it all down. And that's yeah. what it becomes. My wife and I became more and more aware of that. And that became more and more difficult than over time for us, because then, you know, we had a target on our back and in different ways, trying, you know, they were trying to shut us down. Yeah. And it reached a point where, uh, we felt like we had done all that that we could do to shine a light, and so we said we can't, you know, we can't stay here any longer and still walk with integrity. We can't, we just can't be a part of this system. Yeah. And so we resigned, which was painful. And the only thing we hadn't done uh, was appeal to the whole church, basically go public. Right. And so we ended up going back six months later. My wife and I met with the board. And we said, you know, here, here, here's where things are at. Here's where we're at. And we're, we've decided we're going to meet with the church. And we're not asking for your permission, but we'd like you to, we're doing it. We'd like you to be there. And so a couple of weeks later, we met with the church. The board was there and we shared with them. Here's what the board has done. What happened? So then um, that, that, that was very difficult meeting. 
Yeah. And I shared, I think, for about 45 minutes or so. Did you lay out like evidence and, you know, exhibits basically and like to sort of show people like here are some literal words like, you know, that kind of a thing? Yeah, I did. I mean, that's what I started with was here in, in on this date and this year, the board passed a policy that dot, 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 you know. Yeah. The church needed to know that it was a leadership failure. Yeah. And that's basically what was being covered up was the failure of leadership. And there were specific ways in which leadership had failed evidence, you know, that could back that up. And so I just presented that to the church. Yeah. And, you know, afterwards, and people came up to me and said, you know, thank you. And it was a bomb, like a bomb went off. I mean, people had no idea. And, oh, I bet. and the, yeah. then the chairman of the other board got up afterwards and he said, I, I can't disagree with anything that's been shared. You know, and so wow. that was, that was validating. That's, you know, right. Yeah. 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 Huge. And then two weeks later or so they invited us back, my wife and I, before the church publicly apologized to us, all of the board members. Wow. And that set in then motion, just some changes. Uh, they ended up all resigning from the board. And one of the neat things too, that happened, and I've never witnessed this before or heard of it, all of the elders who had served over the years with, in particular, the senior pastor who was kind of behind a lot of the mistreatment and you don't say. Yeah, right. Yeah. A lot of times it's one person, you know, but then there's a board yeah. that enables and goes along, is yep. complicit. And so all of the elders who had served over 20 years or so and were still at the church got up on the stage. And together they confessed to the church what they called systemic failure for, for, for years. And so it wasn't wow. just the current board. And that was you know, powerful to witness. So these stories can kind of end well, in a sense. I mean, yeah, you can't undo harm, but like churches can respond well. Institutions can respond well. You had to go all the way to the sort of almost the nuclear option. Yeah. But you did it in a way that was careful and that you sort of proved that you weren't defaulting to the nuclear option. Right. And eventually they, I mean, that's encouraging. Yeah, it is. It should not have taken that, uh, but it's encouraging to know that there are steps that you can take that might result in the truth coming out and and then people in power making necessary changes. But it it's hard to know what those steps are and those steps are also risky and it results in more pain. Nobody should have to get up and share their story, you know, in front of right. yeah, like that kind of thing. Right. One thing that I hope can happen is people who are in situations like this can get help from others who might be able to give them insight into what specific steps they can take. So, for example, the church's lawyer came back and defended some of the decisions the leadership was making and gave some legal advice. I challenged that and thought, I I don't know how a lawyer could could interpret the laws in this way. But of course, I'm not a lawyer, you know, so how can you say that then? And so that's what I was receiving from the board. Like, well, this is a lawyer and we've hired a lawyer and, you know, this is what the lawyer says. And I thought, well, who can I go to that might be a higher authority? So then I went to the people who wrote the laws, to the legislative team, contacted the state Senate office that oversaw that process. And they then wrote to me, a letter. This is how we wrote these laws, why we wrote these laws, what we intend them to mean. And we don't know how any lawyer could interpret these laws in the way that this lawyer is. So then I gave that to the board and that would then, then that, okay, okay. That in in a sense, it gave them leverage and yeah, yeah, yeah. right, right. So it was a practical step that I was able to take to kind of push through that moment. I love that. I love that problem solving. Okay. How about the people who wrote the fucking law? <laughs> That's incredible. Patrons of this podcast, that is those who join the Patreon community at $5 a month, get access to two exclusive episodes per month 
plus the patron-only Facebook group, which is a marvelous little online community. Recent episodes just came out with our third series of responding to gospel messages with Ariel from Trans Regret Snoopy Presents the Bible. Ariel is my trans friend who, in some respects, thinks and talks about the Bible like a soccer mom, despite being a trans woman in a Western urban setting, which I am sort of never endingly delighted by which uh, she and I, (laughs) she knows that I think about her that way and that I find it very encouraging for my faith, the way that she does not fit in into any of my boxes. And I think most of our, most of us don't have a box for someone like that, but her faith is very genuine. And uh, I always really, really enjoy talking with her, especially when we get into some of the differences in our experience and, and our circles. So we talked about a passage from the gospel of Luke That just came out last week, and later this week, there will be a new Generation Gap Culture Hour with Tony Jones and myself. Uh, I'm sure we'll probably get at least somewhat into the Roe v. Wade thing, since that's kind of the big item in the news. Um, So you can look forward to that if you are a patron. If you'd like to become one, patreon.com slash dancoke, and that link is in the show notes. Back to the episode. So now, you know, we've kind of maybe normally we would save the end of the story for the end of the episode, but I like that we're kind of, all right, we are arming ourselves with a little bit of hope. So we are not having the the rest of this conversation, which is going to get into more of the mechanics of this kind of impression management that these organizations can engage in. We, uh, we don't have to be completely cynical for the rest of this conversation. We can feel like, hey, there are ways that these things can go that are actually sort of just and and good. So I love the design of the research project. You picked three institutions that were evangelical in nature, that had had public scandals, and that had released, you know, basically information for public audiences to take in either in sermons or press releases or appearances in media or whatever stuff to the church body, stuff to the board that was publicly available, you know, all these kinds of things. So you had a bunch of data that you could then analyze and you did what's, you know, a a very common thing in qualitative research is you looked for key themes, repeated themes. You compare the three organizations, you know, we don't have to get into all the nitty gritty of the, of the design, but I, I liked that as a way of like, okay, we've got like hard data. These are things that the church leadership has said, and we're going to look for patterns. And I just, obviously you can hear my voice. What a cool idea I think that is. And so th- tell us a little bit about each of those three organizations and sort of why you chose them. Yeah. So the three are Bob Jones University, Mars Hill Church, and Sovereign Grace Ministries, which is now called Sovereign Grace Churches. And I selected them because I couldn't take a look at all of the evangelical institutions in the United States of America who had gone through a recent scandal. Uh, that's what I started with collecting cases of pastors who had been arrested for a crime within the last year. So this would have been years like 2017. Yeah. I didn't realize at the time what I was in for. Wow. 2017, 143 or around there publicly available reports of a Protestant pastor in the United States of America who had been arrested for some kind of crime. The vast majority of those crimes were sex crimes. The vast majority of the sex crimes were committed against children. So I just, I can't look at all of these cases. So then I decided, all right, let's select some publicly known scandals stuff that media reports have written something about, people have commented, it's resulted then in the organization having to release statements to the public. Then, But I mean, there's a good number of those as well, though. But I had to create some criteria and then run everything through that criteria and see, okay, well, yeah. what do we have here? What what organizations meet the criteria? And there were three then. It was and it was these these three. And I don't have the dissertation open in front of me, and I can't recall exactly yeah. what those kind of, that list of, Filters, you know. I just looked at it this morning. It's something yeah, like, okay. you know, an evangelical institution 
that had a public scandal that had sort of language that was written for public consumption, mm-hmm. you know, like those kinds of a thing so that I could, you know, so that you could rather take this stuff and basically analyze it in the same way. It's, it's all in a similar category, right. which I thought was a really cool way of, of going about it. Sovereign Grace, there was lawsuits of a conspiracy to cover up child sex abuse. Mars Hill Church, obviously, everybody who listens to this show knows mm-hmm. about that scandal. I mean, multiple scandals, but there's the – which ones did you cover for Mars Hill or, or was it just one or multiple ones? There's the plagiarism, the book sales, uh, allegations of abusive behavior, you know, sort of soft A, abusive behavior by Driscoll – what what was the sort of stuff you focused on there? I mean, it was all of that, but I would say most of it, of it had yeah. to do with the abusive behavior of Mark Driscoll. Like when the elders and different pastors and Dustin Kensrue, you know, people sort of right. alleging this like behind the scenes, like really bad behavior by Mark. Right, right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And then Bob Jones, I mean, there's a list in my mind of, of things with Bob Jones, yeah. but I go all the way back to the bylaws disallowing black and white students from dating. But what was the, which scandal or scandals did you analyze from Bob Jones university? That was primarily in response to the grace report. I mean, that was a big source of data for me. So grace is an acronym that stands for godly response to abuse in the Christian environment. So it's an organization that does investigations and assessments. Mm. Bob Jones had brought them in to look at how they had failed to respond to college students who had disclosed to professors or counselors or staff at Bob Jones, either prior abuse, that they were getting seeking help from the school for, and then receiving harmful treatment, harmful responses, or some of the stuff that was like happening on campus. And so it was basically looking at how Bob Jones was failing to respond to these stories and causing more harm, looking at some of its teaching. And Bob Jones didn't respond well to the Grace Report. They tried to shut it down, and it was a whole scandal. So we could, you know, of course, we could talk about the scandals, but I think it's so much cooler and interesting to look at these themes that you found. So you, I think you read, you know, 100,000 words, you know, like a, a big chunk of these, you know, releases, these public statements made by these, you know, by the institutions themselves or various leaders within the institutions. And you came up with a bunch of tactics mm-hmm. that were often repeated across organizations. Some of the language you use in the book, Something's Not Right, is the language of a playbook. I understand that the dissertation basically led to to that kind of an idea because you're like, oh my gosh, these, these guys kind of have a playbook. Yeah, you see so much in pressure management. It's amazing how the patterns seem to be similar across so many different situations and and, and cases, as if they're reading from the same playbook or someone's given them all a script. I wrote down a number of these tactics that you found. So the first three I've written down are organizational promotion, negative events misrepresented, and boasting. Uh, We could talk about one or more of those? Organizational promotion is when the institution, its leadership, a team seeks to shine a spotlight on its current or past successes, on all the good that it's doing, you know, when they're going through a scandal, maybe promoting all of the changes that they plan on making. And it's an attempt to, in my mind, as I understand it, communicate to an audience that while this negative thing has happened, this is not who we are. This is not like us. And this is who we are. And then they get into the organizational promotion. I can't help but think of the Mars Hill podcast. And, you know, in the midst of some of those scandals, Driscoll's sermons, including baptism numbers and growth numbers and all this kind of like, well, look, if things were really that bad, why would the Lord be blessing us? Why would we be bringing a thousand people a year to Christ or or whatever it is? And it's exactly that. It's promoting the organization to sort of, well, interpret these 
nitpicking things in light of our great glories, essentially. Yeah. yeah and it, you know, there's a recent example of a, a church that I was attempting to, you know, help through consultation and was looking at some of their communication for them. And at one point the elders had said, you know, they had gone through a scandal. And in the wake of that, they said, we need to flush the system. And the way they wanted to flush the system was by promoting baptisms and telling stories of life change. Because those have power and then will distract people essentially. Right. And if you're saving people from eternal hell and baptism is the clearest example you have of that, well, that's eternal. This is non-eternal. I'm making scales of justice hands for the, for (laughs) listeners. And you know, the eternal is always going to outweigh the temporal in that, in sort of that sense of people going, well, Driscoll's bringing a thousand people to Christ. So that's a thousand people not in hell, which is of course, there's a bunch of logical jumps in there. But that's what you're appealing to in people, that sense of like eternal purpose and eternal infinite value. Yep. And when it becomes about impression management, when it becomes about self-promotion for the sake of the organization's growth or legitimacy or survival, then the concern for those good things is no longer a moral concern. The concern itself isn't an ethical concern. And then you have all kinds of danger associated with that. What's the difference between organizational promotion and boasting, which is a a separate item in your research? So boasting in the impression management literature doesn't typically have to do with the boasting of the self directly, but how somebody is like another person who the audience might view favorably. So it's an indirect form of self-promotion. So direct self-promotion or organizational promotion says, we've done this. So actually, organizational promotion is more the sort of layman's term boasting. Yes, right. I'm right. great. But in, in this particular academic literature, the boasting terminology is is secondary. It's through like, well, think of me like you think of this other Person, So can you give us an example from one of the ministries? Well, it could be like Mark Driscoll boasting and how he's going to work for his father, God, or he's just working for senior pastor, Jesus Christ. So he's boasting in his positive connection to Jesus. God told me directly, preach the Bible, marry grace, yeah. you know, raise up young men, plant churches or whatever right, those right, things right. were like. I lo- that was actually my favorite episode of The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill was the little special episode in the middle where Cosper tracked how that story had changed over the years through available audio of Driscoll telling it and how it had distilled over time into this direct address from God, but it didn't start that way. And so that kind of boasting mm-hmm. in my spiritual abuse scale, which I am just now tweaking as we speak like this week and maybe slightly changing some wording that falls under my controlling or authoritarian leadership subscale. And the item on it is my pastor explicitly claiming to speak on God's behalf. Mm -hmm. That's the ultimate boasting. It's a kind of an infinite in this sense of boasting, right? It's like not me, but God and God's infinite and God doesn't make mistakes and I'm God's spokesperson. So it's the ultimate conferring of sort of external authority. And if you're able to imagine kind of lines of connection, and this is one thing that helps me picture all of this, because in some ways, impression management seeks to elevate a person, right? So it could be the self, for example, and get people to look at a person. In other ways, the impression management is seeking to promote or bring people's eyes toward a connection, right? A line. Mm. So in that instance, it's not about so much even, the per- it is indirectly about the person, but what they want people to see is the connection. And then that's indirectly then causing people to view him as an agent of God. It's like when politicians want to be on stage with a popular pastor yeah. 
or another popular political figure, right? That's like Trump or Biden comes on stage alongside a a local person running for state Senate, right? right? So it's like, it's not about the candidate. It's about their connection to this powerful person. And then that puts you at ease and goes, oh, they're – they're on the team with this person I voted for, or they're in with the people who can really do something or, you know, whatever. Right. 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 Yep. What about opinion conformity? Tell us about that theme that you picked up on. Yeah. And that's an ingratiating tactic. So when somebody wants to increase the liking that another person has of them, they might try to exaggerate or fabricate or exploit some shared opinion, uh, some agreement mm-hmm. over an idea maybe, or a view, or uh, let's say, I think maybe a common example of this is if somebody goes to a person in a position of leadership and says, you know, I, I think that the organization is being harmful in these ways. And let's say the organization doesn't agree with that, but they view this person as a threat. They want to keep them quiet. They don't want it to escalate. And so in order to de-escalate it or in order to satisfy this person, they might feign agreement just to form an alliance with that person and then ingratiate that person to them. So that person leaves and thinking, okay, they heard me. They said that they agree with my concerns and they're going to handle it and they're going to take care of it. But in reality, maybe they didn't agree and therefore they're not going to respond. And they've have, they have then sent that person away thinking there, there's an alliance there. There's a, there's a conformity, but it's all under false pretense. So that's such a, like a light bulb for me of like, oh, this is like the mechanism for this very common step. There's a step where the person goes, I think that went well. Mm-hmm. Right. And like, yeah, I think we're on the same page. And then they wait and nothing happens and they think well why is something well it must be some other thing we were we did agree well maybe you didn't agree and the person or the board or whomever they intuited and this is to that kind of meta question that I'll ask you straightforwardly later of like why are there commonalities here and i would i would posit there are sort of psychological rules at play maybe that people intuit about how to get someone out of their office mm-hmm. and how to like get the ball rolling. It's to overemphasize agreement that might not be there. That's the mechanism by which that very familiar meeting happens. That's so interesting. How about burying? I mean, that seems kind of straightforward, but what does burying mean in the context of this uh, organizational impression management? So burying is an attempt to buried to cover over a negative connection that somebody has with another person or event that the audience would view in a negative way. You can see impression management all all over the place when you talk about Trump. So let's say Trump at different points was asked, did you know so-and-so who's been arrested for a crime? And, you know, he worked he worked for you and, and Trump would say, well, I never met the guy or have no idea who you're talking about. So that's, that's an attempt to bury a connection to a native butter. Yeah. So what's burnishing then? So burnishing then is kind of on the opposite side of it. If somebody wanted to promote their positive connection to a positive other, you know, here's how I'm connected to this celebrity over here or this powerful person over here. Then in order to promote that connection, a person might also burnish or I use the word polish, exaggerate or make up, basically in a deceptive way, spotlight the positive characteristics of the person they are positively connected to. So for example, a politician, and again, I'll bring up Trump, if that's okay. I mean, I don't, you know, but oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Right. somebody sure. who had worked worked with him was talking about how Trump was has been so enamored by dictators like like Putin, yeah, and would talk about how he wanted that kind of power and was enamored by the kind of power that they had. So somebody who maybe wants to be connected to 
a person like that in a positive way might legitimize that connection or seek to get other people to support that connection by burnishing the positive qualities of that person. Well, look at, you know, he can, he can get things done. He can take care of dissenters. You know, he can, Mm -hmm. he can make sure that people who threaten conservative values you know, are taken care of. He, he can get an economy can, going oh, right, or whatever. Right, right. Yeah. So he's, he's yeah. burnishing the, the perceived positive attributes. Yeah. Of someone he is already connected to essentially. Right. Yeah. So it's sort of like, a, <laughs> if there starts to be bad press about Batman, <laughs> it would be like Batman's PR team talking up Superman and Wonder Woman and the other members of the Justice League. Right. So that as people are reminded of their impressions of their, of his coworkers or whatever. Oh, well then so Batman must not be so bad. Right. 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 Interesting. So one of what I imagine is one of the direct approaches, but it's kind of a, a curious item to be on this list is actually apology. Mm-hmm. I imagine this is not a full throated apology. This is some sort of minor apology to sort of take the pressure off. Is that right? Yeah. So in the dissertation, apology is, is another tactic. It's an attempt, usually an attempt to make something go away. So they might get to a point where they need to wave a white flag and concede and acknowledge that, yes, this happened. And perhaps they have no excuses left. There aren't any justifications left. They can't escape accountability, but maybe they can escape penalty or serious repercussions, escape justice even by giving an apology in the hope that people will then receive that apology and and they everyone can then just move on. That makes me think of Driscoll. It seems like there were multiple times on his timeline where he, where he would basically say like, have I been kind of harsh to people? Sure. Have I been, you know, have I said things I regret? Yes. It's something I'm working on. It's something, you know, my elder board is going to hold me accountable to that kind of thing. So it's like, Admitting to just enough, but with no, there's no like concrete sanctions. He He's not, he doesn't have to actually sacrifice anything. He just has to say that. And then that might buy him six more months or something like that. Yep. So it's, it's still about maintaining power. Often it's still about maintaining legitimacy and, and control, maintaining control of the narrative it is kind of like the playbook thing. And, you know, I'm sure that like PR agents, for instance, like know kind of this playbook, you reach, you reach a point where there's sort of some psychological rule of thumb where enough of the public knows enough about X that you can't really get away with denying it. But before that point, you maybe can. And and it is kind of this, like, there seem to be these kind of rules Sort of like the principle of critical mass, right? Where it's like a term reaches critical mass at some point, and that's when it kind of tips, or like Malcolm Gladwell's the tipping point about trends or whatever. Like there does seem to be like some psychological individual and group facts or the way that things are. Is that is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think so. When someone gets to the point where they're just doing the bare minimum to maintain power while at the same time mitigating the threat. Yeah, and and with min, and doing the minimum amount of personal or institutional change yep. and and losing the minimum amount of power. Right. 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 Yep. There's a there's an interesting item here. Uh it's called pro-social behavior. And the reason that that one jumps out to me is because this is commonly one of the things that people cite I think rightly so, as one of the benefits of involvement in a religious group. It increases pro-social behavior that, you know, care for the poor and marginalized, increasing of community bonds, protection against sort of risky behavior, right, and antisocial behavior. So when you say that these organizations use pro-social behavior as a tactic of impression management, what does that mean? In most of the cases, you know, it was presented as a defensive tactic. It was in response to some kind of need to defend the organization's legitimacy and and goodwill. 
Oh, like you start a big giving campaign or something. Right, right, right. Oh, I mean, uh, not 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 giving to the church, but like we've started a new homeless outreach or we've started a parks cleanup initiative or, you know. It's kind of like opinion conformity, an attempt to conform the organization to the values they perceive are held by society. And, and that's where it becomes just a little bit fake. It may not even be their values. It's this is what mm. society wants. This is what society values right now. And we better get on the same page if we want their business. Let's say you have a, a conservative, fundamental, male-dominated Christian college, and they've gotten complaints about how women aren't being treated fairly. And so they go on a campaign to show how they are empowering women and they engage in pro-social behavior, but they don't actually do the hard work to look at their patriarchal values or their, they still maintain male domination, but they begin to, let's say, have women join the board, but they can't vote, but they can sit there and they can, they can be advisors and right. And then they promote that. They take a picture of the whole board with the women there and they put it on the website. So people think that they have a, their board is diverse in gender as men and women. And, but people don't know that still only the men can vote. So they're engaging in pro-social behavior. Or like Liberty approves the LGBTQ student club. Right. Right. But you still can't like actually date someone of your same gender. Right. But you can have a club where you all commiserate or whatever, but you can't, it doesn't really give you any power. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh shit. Wade. This stuff is sad. It is. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> I walk it's, away from this work it you know, often just sad and wondering why am I doing this? But, but at the, like we talked about at the beginning, you know, the, you know, I've seen glimmers of hope and I've seen change. And, and I think the more people are aware of this kind of stuff and can call it out in themselves and, yeah. and in others, then you can see actual change happening. I love these tools of basically being able to teaching people to discern when individuals or institutions are just appearing to address it and when they've actually addressed it. I I think, for example, like after Ravi Zacharias died and his daughter, I think, took over, she was like, we're going to get a full-throated, outside, independent you know, organization to come audit everything. And then, and people recognized, including all the reporters who have been covering it, like, this is a shift. This is like actual transparency. And, and what they found was super incriminating. And she, to her great credit was like, okay, we have to pivot this organization. Like we obviously failed here and we can't just keep doing what we've been doing, you know, but it's like, whatever they were doing before that, we could probably like go through those documents and like find a bunch of these tactics. Right. Yes. So I want to do like 10 minutes on one of the things that the book does. Something's not right. That the dissertation doesn't look at as much, which is some of the interpersonal tactics that people can use who may be abusers. And I, I just flagged a few of them. There's a ton more that we're not covering. So people should get a copy if they want to learn more. But I thought this bit about flattery was really interesting because it actually kind of crosses, it kind of rides both sides, interpersonal and institutional. So you talk about how a person might flatter you that thinks you might have a problem with them, right? Be like, you know, you pick up on so much more than everyone else does to kind of lower your whatever. Mm -hmm. But you also see it at like conferences or when people interview each other. I probably have done a little bit of flattery here, but there can be a kind of intense kind of flattery. I've even seen it. I've, I've heard clips of this on another podcast, like with Brene Brown, she comes on and someone's like, this is the best book I've read in a year. And you know, it's like, if you, you do so much of it, it becomes almost like an infomercial and then you can't dissent from that. Yeah. I mean, flattery is so powerful. That's one thing that I, I want people to understand, and I've been talking so much about flattery that people are probably wondering, what? why is he so interested in flattery? Well, because it's often the, the first method 
the first tactic that's used to entrap somebody because people are more likely to comply with demands, requests, favors after they've been flattered. So it, it, I think it's very, very powerful. And I think it does become learned over time. And I think it becomes reinforced. Uh, so you get this culture of flattery. And it's hard then for people to not engage in that. It becomes kind of automatic, expected, yeah. second nature. This is how we talk to each other. And if you don't engage in that with us and to the degree that we're engaging in it, then you're not with us. You're not one of us. So then it becomes really toxic, right? There's no room then for someone to say, yeah, you know, I actually didn't read your book, right? So, uh, you know, there, there's no room for people to just be honest or say, I wasn't really a fan of that, you know? You know yeah, a kind of innocuous example would be like late night hosts. Yeah. Who always, who every night have like a new author on, and they go, "Excellent book!" And it's like, there's no fucking way you read all those right. books. You don't have time to read a book right. every day. And so then I now know that they didn't read it, but it it is it's sort of like a waste of time. Like, why did you spend the twenty seconds telling us all that you read the book that you obviously didn't read? Like, maybe your assistant skimmed it and gave you some points, or you know, like it becomes like theater. Really, then it becomes inauthentic. It it doesn't mean yep. anything to people because it's not people know it's not sin- sincere. You know, real encouragement is most helpful when it's attached to knowledge. You know, when somebody has done the work to actually get to know you or your work to the point where they can give a give valid feedback, and you know it's valid because. They know what they're talking about. They've, they, they, they've put in the work. Whereas if it's just, hey, this is a line I use with everyone. Yeah, you can save that. Well, in full disclosure, Wade, I haven't read your full dissertation or your full book. <laughs> <laughs> like I have good methods that help me write questions. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, I'll just lay them out there. Any other podcasters or interviewers like intro and outro chapters are great. Mm-hmm. And chapter titles are often great to sort of know what's going on for the dissertation. I did, I did go through and sort of, I wanted to find the lists of the tactics yeah. and uh, I read the abstract and sort of understood what you were doing. I, I think I did an okay job of getting what you were going yeah. after, but I won't bullshit you and tell you that I read all 180 pages of your <laughs> dissertation and two whatever of your book. And I almost never do listeners. I almost never read the whole books. I usually read, the intro chapters and some else, some additional to figure out what it is I want to ask them about. I also don't like to know everything someone's going to say. Like there's a, there is a value in sort of learning as a listener learns. Mm -hmm. There are two others just going to give you a chance to talk about favors and alliances before we sort of, before we sort of wrap up with some final stuff. Favors is, you know, when somebody does favors for you as a way to, increasing your dependency on them or just increase your liking of them. And so a lot of this is under the heading of trying to trying to create bonds of trust, engineer trust. It's not real trust. It's it's manufactured through flattery or through favors. And so one way you know that is you know, somebody might come to you later and say, you know, why can't why can't you do this for me? You know, I've look at all this stuff that I've done for you. And then you realize, well, was all that stuff you did for me back then really about me and for my good? Or was it so that you could control me and come to me at this point in my life and say, now you owe me, right? So- I just watched The Godfather Part Two last oh, night yeah. and it's like, <laughs> I won't forget yes, it. That's right. You know, right. I don't, I won't forget those who do me, fa- like right. it's all about that kind of thing and it's just power. And those, and those mafia dons are incredibly abusive right. and it is a, about themselves, right, right. you know. So that you know, favors and then uh, alliances. You know, I, one of one of the things that I came across and some of the work that I've been doing, advocating for those who've been abused and in, and in the research too, is how, especially perpetrators of sexual abuse, would use either again made up or exaggerated experiences that they've had, that they know the 
target, the person they're targeting, the person they go on to victimize has also experienced, right? They might reveal some of their own past trauma, let's say, or past childhood abuse very quickly in the relationship, expecting that the person they're targeting is then going to open up and reciprocate, but they may not be comfortable doing that. You know, they often aren't. And they're mm -hmm. like, wait, wait, I don't really know this guy. And here I am. And then they begin to exploit that information that's been shared. And, and so they're forming yeah. this dependency, this alliance, this false alliance on the basis of experiences or, or it could be opinions too. It's all manufactured. It's all engineered in order to coerce trust because then once that trust is there, then the abusive person can come along and begin to exploit that trust. So maybe if it's a, hey, now that trust has been built, they might begin to isolate that person more and more, spend more and more time alone with that person because the trust is there and the person doesn't think that really anything bad is going to happen. And then in that place of isolation, there might be um, a boundary that's crossed. Um, in sexual abuse cases, you know, there's an advance, there's an assault and and the person who's been victimized is wondering how, what is going on? This is a person in a position of trust. This person maybe has done a lot of good things for me, has said a lot of good things for, you know, to me. And now this really bad traumatic thing is happening to me. And I don't know how to reconcile that with everything that's been leading up to this moment. Well, Wade, incredible work. I love that you're now doing this you know, this is like your gig. You've got a consulting firm that is there to talk with institutions about this kind of stuff. You've got a Substack, which I just subscribed to. I guess you kind of learned how to do what you're doing now organically through that process that you and your wife went through with your old church. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't something I set out to. Both. Yeah. But now you have, as Liam Neeson in the Taken movies, a particular, a very particular set of skills. Okay. <laughs> so you do have a, a question toward the end of the book that I, I wanted to give you a chance to just speak very briefly about in case people need to hear this, who aren't going to end up getting the book, which is what can or should people do if they're starting to feel like something's not right in their interactions with a powerful person or institution? I think one thing that is really helpful is to begin to discern what is true, because often in these situations, there's a lot of gaslighting, there's a lot of deception, which results in confusion. And so it's difficult to make sense of the situation, make sense of what's happening to you, what has happened to you. And so one way you can do that is by taking an inventory. And so that could look like, okay, here's a list of all the ways in which I've been harmed. Here's a list of all the things that have upset me, you know, for good reason. And here are all the things that this person has, has done. And you begin to take an inventory of that, which is difficult to do you know, because you're revisiting that, that pain. And so it might be something you do with a therapist or a support person or over time. I think what happens though, is when you begin to do that inventory and basically tell your story to yourself, then you can undo some of those lies and undo some of the gaslighting and reach maybe a conclusion of saying, no, I don't deserve to be treated like this. I ought to be upset. I do need to take some action or others need to take, should it be taking action on my behalf? So I think that can be really important. And then as much as you can, as much as it's safe to do so, building that support network, because that's one of the things that gets dismantled by an abusive institution, abusive person are these supportive relationships. They just get, they get dismantled by the abusive person because that support is a threat. And so by going and speaking to a therapist or somebody you know, who will listen to your story and say, this is, this is what I'm experiencing. This is what I've, I do think something's not right here. Um, that person then hopefully can give affirmation, can give validation, and then also can give some practical steps for you to think about. So it's, it's getting clarity where there's confusion and then finding other people who can help you make, take some steps, get your agency back. I love it. Wade, thank you so much for your time, for the work that you're doing. I feel like I've got another key person 
to sort of keep in touch with and, and follow your work. So much overlap between what I am hoping to do and what you are already doing. And I'm going to have links in the show notes for your website and your Substack and the book. Something's not right. Uh, anything else you want to leave us with? No, I think that's it. I mean, it's been great, you know, talking to you. I appreciate you spotlighting this work and encourage to know that you're d- doing the research that you're doing on spiritual abuse. Mm-hmm.